From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. They were almost at the very top of the mountain. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio oddities we pick up all over the world. The internet, the airwaves, international audio festivals. We are a celebration of sound, and you are invited to the party. Just a few more chugs and they'd be over. The little engine was pulling just as hard as she could. The clown was worried. Since time began, people have been fascinated with the idea of going up. Ascension, discovery, it just sort of seems genetic. The tops of mountains, the heavens, space, all things we pull ourselves toward in an effort to know what is beyond our reach as soft, earthbound, imminently breakable little humans. He said, do you think you can make it? And the little blue engine said, I think I can, 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 I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could. On the top of a mountain, the air is thin, the temperature's freezing, and the danger constant. Because it's there, may be the only explanation that extreme athletes like mountain climbers can give as to why they risk life and limb to summit a mountain that rises over 24,000 feet into the sky. Sue Fear, and it's almost impossible not to comment on the irony of her name, was one of the most accomplished Australian women climbers. And I say was quite deliberately, because Sue Fear died on a mountain descent in 2006. But that's just the beginning of Roz Blewett's portrait of a woman who refused to stay on even ground. From Radio I on ABC Radio National in Australia, this is Possessed in Spite of Fear. Well, I'm sitting at about 6,400 metres uh, underneath Mount Everest, which sits at 8,848 metres. And uh, we're in the back of Tibet. I'm on the north side of the mountain. And uh, around me is lots of rocks and lots of snow and ice. There's an enormous glacier that flows down beside us. She was a no-nonsense sort of person. Liked to do things properly. Didn't take shortcuts. She was certainly different. Some reason used to get up at dawn and thrash up and down the North Sydney Pool you know, every day before work. And the cycleway there, you look down at North Sydney Pool and I could actually see her swimming up and down. And going, oh. She was very competitive. <laughs> Hasn't she got a hangover or something? I don't think Sue was ever suited to a desk job. She had a problem with, with um, buffhead guys trying to act tough. And you could see she was always scratching at how she was going to get out there to fund her next adventure. She, she could be explosive. No, I think she just wanted an even break. You know, just judge me for what I am and what I do. She was as thin as a rake. And that's what a lot of times people write her off as, uh, you know, someone, there's nothing of you, you're not going to climb a mountain. How can you climb a mountain? That's like red rag to a ball. You said she couldn't do something, that's it. She'd go and do it. views were absolutely phenomenal and for someone who enjoys taking pictures and looking at mountains and all that kind of thing there's 
There's nowhere else in the world like the top of Everest. One of Australia's top mountaineers is feared to have died in the Himalayas. The Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade has confirmed a 43-year-old Australian woman was killed after falling into a crevasse. She was descending Nepal's Mount Manaslu, the world's eighth highest peak. Plans to mount a rescue mission to save the Australian the mountain climber Sue Fear have been abandoned. The decision was made after her fellow mountaineers decided it was impossible to find the exact place where she disappeared. Sue Fear is one of the country's most experienced mountaineers. She climbed Mount Everest three years ago. Rebecca, my daughter, the nine-year-old, she was horrified that we were just leaving her on the mountain. And I pulled out the well and found out that uh, if she was killed in a crevasse, she didn't want to be uh, retrieved. Stated on the will, it said, um, if I should die whilst on expedition, I wish my body to remain close to the place of my death, first choice in a crevasse. Unbelievable. If she'd have put on her will, I want to be retrieved to Australia and buried in a such and such a location. I imagine how devastating it would have been for us to know that there was no way we were going to ever find her. Anna and Graham Fear, Sue's sister-in-law and brother. Every year at about the same time, Sue would get restless and start planning a new high-altitude adventure. Her friends recall that this spirit of determination and her love of the outdoors took hold when she was in her early 20s. At the time, she worked in adventure travel where she made some lifelong friends. One of the first people she made an impression on was Milton Sams. As he remembers, Sue was very forthright about wanting to be part of his expeditions, and so began many adventures together. I've just got some, got some slides here uh, that I've taken over, maybe a 10-year period, that I'll just show you now. You see the big smiley face? Of... Yes, yeah, she wasn't shy. Um, she came straight up. And, uh, and hit me straight, you know, can I go mountaineering in Peru sometime? And I thought, well, look, look the rivers are going to wash her away, but unbelievably uh, we got down there and, and she was just a, a legend. There's no way she would ever be washed away by a river. She's too determined. Another of Sue's close friends was fellow mountaineer Lincoln Hall. He co-authored her recent book, Fear No Boundary, about her 2003 Everest climb. In a cruel irony, Lincoln was left dying on Mount Everest when Sue met her fate on nearby Mount Manaslu. She's got a very strong mind, very strong mind, and your mind pushes your body. Your body's screaming to stop, and she knows her body very well, what she can do, and that's why she, she was able to achieve what she did, being very slight. You know, times when she was afraid of being blown off the mountain because she was, you know, she weighed so little. That's in Bolivia. Completely dedicated to the outdoors. Every aspect of it. This is this really incredibly remote part of, of Patagonia that hasn't actually been explored. Okay, so we're actually sort of in there, being the first people to actually ever go in there. Was she the only woman on that expedition? Oh yeah, the, just about every trip I went on, she, she was the only woman. There are not many women in Australia who are into high altitude mountaineering and, and I guess when you meet one you tend to just go blah 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 blah. Bridget Muir often crossed paths with Sue as they both led expeditions for the same company. In 1997 Bridget became the first Australian woman to reach the top of Mount Everest. 
Sue followed as the second. Bridget retired from the sport two years after her Everest climb when a good friend died descending another Himalayan peak. She and Sue often caught up for a beer and a chat. Sue was really a funny girl. We had a lot of good times together. <laughs> and something that we always used to laugh about was um, someone came up with the ludicrous idea of calling her the first Australian-born woman to climb Mount Everest. And we used to laugh about it and to say that, you know, I was the first Australian blonde to climb Everest and she was the first Australian brunette to climb it. <laughs> yeah, we drank to that. <laughs> And the highest a mountaineer can climb is the 8,000 metre mark, or 26,000 feet, the height by which all other mountains are measured and above which life begins to die. There are 14 mountains in the world above 8,000 metres, and Sue had made it to the top of five of them. American researcher and author Jennifer Jordan has developed a fascination with the lives and expeditions of high-altitude mountaineers in particular how women experience such an extreme sport. The tops of these mountains, even though they, some of them are very well trod, you know, they're, they're still beacons for the pioneer spirit. And I applaud that. I mean, I really, I applaud that part of mountaineering, that these personalities find a real, you know, a zest and an answer in their own souls that they don't find down at, at sea level. That there's something about the experience and its silence and its solitude and its pain and its suffering that defines them in a way that nothing else does. And, you know, in, in doing this research, I, I said over and over to myself, you know, thank God I'm able to find that kind of glory at sea level because it would kind of be a sad life if that's where you found the best of who you are. But I think these mountain, for them, that is where they find the best of who they are. And who am I to deny that they should do it? Inherently, I've always enjoyed adventuring and I think you can learn most things about the world and about yourself challenging out in nature. I think when you get that kick out of, of challenging yourself in that environment, you seek more and more. Can I rock climb at a higher grade? Can I walk a longer distance? You know, that sense of being tested to the fullest, using your intellect, strategizing and planning and drawing on your experience and then using your body mm. to pull it off. When she discovered mountains, she could drive a body as hard as she could. I mean, people die because they drive their bodies so hard in the mountains. It often happens. And so she had that potential. There was no sort of like, I'm at the end of the race. <laughs> you know, and so I think 8,000 metre peaks, I mean the top five are a dimension above the others because you basically have to have a camp at a, you know, above 8,000 metres to reach the, the summit of those, those other five and that puts them in a whole different dimension. There's something magic about that number, 8,000 metres. And it's good to have magic words because it's, it's nice to have something to aim for. It's a pretty interesting quest to get up there and to, to live and survive in that very rarefied air. 
and physiologically, I think it does something to your body as well. Body and mind. It's, it's, um, I think it's a place where you could be at one with life and the universe in a certain way. And if you haven't done it, it's very hard to explain what it feels like. I found that the one common denominator in all climbers that I interviewed and researched, male or female, was passion for climbing. And that didn't vary because they were a woman. And yet, once they got to that mountain that they absolutely loved and had an obsession to climb, they were faced with all this, you know, ridiculous kind of bickering with the men around them and sometimes the women because you know let's face it mountain climbers are difficult personalities they're very arrogant they're very driven they're very obsessed and obsessive and they're not necessarily you know people that you want at your Thanksgiving table they're really tough and so women who are really tough and really strong and really arrogant get it all the more so Oh, that's just on a ridge on the way up. Incredibly tough going. There's no tracks. You've got to cut cane the whole, the whole way. You know? It's just quite a tough trip and carrying really heavy packs. I couldn't believe it. A lot of the male mountaineers, I guess, used to shut her out a bit because, um, you know, oh, she's a woman, you know, or, you know, she's, she's too skinny, she can't go on climbing. And that, and that used to just rile her up like you wouldn't believe. And, and it would sort of be the catalyst for, for her to just sort of to stimulate this superhuman effort, okay? It's just this sheer driver she had was absolutely amazing. Sometimes she might be driven by, by someone dismissing her. And not that she has a huge ego, but um, when she felt treated as second-class citizen because she was a woman. That's what made her angry. But I don't think she was an angry person herself. I don't think it was anger that Sue had. And from, you know, a lot, lot of the discussions we had following her expeditions, yes, there were always boys at the base camp that she was telling to pull their head in because there were those expectations that women shouldn't just simply not be on mountains. So, you know, those people really irritated Sue and she had no problems or qualms in making them know that that wasn't acceptable to her. I think that, you know, she had done a lot of mountaineering and she'd done her apprenticeship. You know, she really had started with the small hills and she'd built up to the climax of Mount Everest. But throughout that journey of climbing those mountains, she'd had a lot of anguish, I suppose, with, with men on hills. And um, she wanted to be more than just a person who went out climbing mountains. She wanted to be recognised as a great mountaineer. I felt that I'd uh, served my apprenticeship. Hundreds and hundreds of days working as a trek guide, uh, full-time for more than 12 years, but over 20 years I've worked in adventure tourism. I've been on four other major expeditions, uh, two other 8,000-metre peaks. I led an expedition to a remote area in Nepal in 97 that went to 7,700 metres. I summited all of them, got myself off comfortably. I wasn't a cot case. I have demonstrated performance. 
for me it was logical that very soon I was going to have the goods to go to Everest, but I wanted to go on my own terms. I didn't want to be short roped up there and have other people make decisions for me. That's significantly different to the people that uh, want to pay and have others make the decision. I think she was so accustomed to being overlooked. The Fear family, everybody pulled their weight. However, Sue's mother was a perfectionist and she liked Sue to be a perfectionist as well, but she also liked Sue to do cooking and kitchen stuff and cleaning. But she also had to do outdoor chores like chopping the wood and things like that. You know, that was sort of like making her a balanced person, whereas there was no attempt to make the the, her, her brother's balanced people, the assumption being that with your mother you're balanced already, you know. Yes! I think Sue's mum had high, very, very strong expectations of what Sue's future would be, and I don't think they fitted in with Sue's own ideology of how her life would run. You know, and I think her mother was probably one of those very, um, perhaps a strong-minded woman, but a, a housewife at heart and um, believed very much in being in the home and raising kids. And I think that's how she saw Sue's future, whereas I, I think Sue did everything possible to rebel against that. <laughs> My mother wasn't backward at coming forward. She'd, you know, she'd say something, and sometimes that probably irritates Sue, and Sue would you know, lash back and say, well, that's, I'm not going to do that, or that's not what I'm about, or... Yeah, Sue was very quick to defend herself and not to be pigeonholed. It doesn't come to you, you know. The Himalaya doesn't fall into your lap. You need to actually make an active step towards it happening. I I'm not going to stay at home because people worry about me. I interviewed many, many climbers at base camp, both in 2000 and 2002 when I went back. And to an individual, and these are women now, and they were like, no, I don't really think about the deaths. I, you know, I know people died here, I know women died here, but I am me and I just take one step at a time and that's all I focus on and that's all I really care about. And maybe in the dark of their tent at night, they're gripped with terror, as I would be, but they sure don't show it or talk about it. They mm -hmm. only talk about, you know, the glory of it and the challenge of it and the beauty of it and uh, the escape of it and that, you know, there's no clutter and there's no noise. You can see in that slide there, we were actually at the foothills of, of the Himalayas there and, and the approach march into the Annapurna region. You, know, you can see Sue there carrying that huge pack and just demonstrates her, her, how doggedly determined she is to, to succeed and go higher and higher and, and do more and more each trip. I, I was always a little bit worried because I know how dangerous these really big mountains can go and going higher and higher and bigger and bigger I means more and more dangerous. I think that Sue was aware of her mortality and I think she, she was a very safe climber though and she was a person who didn't take many risks. And if you look at a lot of mountaineers, you know, they really will often push themselves a little beyond their capabilities. 
or you know what their body signals are saying on a day. Whereas I think Sue would very much was very tapped into her the body signals coming through, and she would react to those, and she would retreat down a mountain. So she wasn't proud in that regard. I had a deal with my father that he never had to worry. He was my best mate because I would always be sensible. That's easier said than done. Just be sensible, Susan. And, you know, I wanted to climb Everest to do him proud uh, on his sudden death last year. Um, but, but be sensible too. And walking away is just as mature and strong in, you know, drawing from your character as going for it, if not more. And I played my cards right. I did have to wait. I had to turn around and come back down and then start all over again. Ultimately, it's summit success and a safe style of climbing that matters. And then suddenly, in the last week, you know, the weather presented itself to be stable and that was showtime. Everything else was preparation and rehearsal and then suddenly everything sandwiched into a short space of time. We were moving up and we were going for the summit at and it literally condensed down into a few days of really intense, focused effort. And um, everyone else had gone home, and we came up and, and just blitzed it on, on the 31st. The weather absolutely just delivered for us. I couldn't have asked for a better uh, set of conditions on that day. I, I'm so fortunate. I, I felt very, very satisfied. That competitiveness, I'm not sure where it came from, but I think when she climbed Everest, she felt she'd run the race. And she may not even have known that she had the race. But she told me that she felt empowered. And certainly, if you've, if you've climbed Everest, well, everything else is lower. Everest is a mark of capability, um, credibility in mountaineering and I think sooner or later you need to make a visit there and show your respects. And that's when people stood up and took notice. The minute she was back in Australia all the doors that were closed to her previously suddenly opened and they said hey, we would like you to come and speak at our school or, hey, we would like you to come and speak to our executives and she'd take along her climbing boots and she'd take along her big suit that she'd be wearing on these mountains and, and she would talk to these kids about, you know, go, my dream was mountaineering. You've got to find your dreams in life and she was really comfortable and she was really in her skin when she was talking to kids. She didn't have that same relationship with adults per se. She hated that notion of being judged whereas kids don't judge adults in the same way. But at the same time, what really came across to me was that was that all the teachers that were there as well, or the, the, the adults present, were just as inspired.
they refuse to live within the box. They refuse to live the mediocre, safe, median life. They found they had a talent and a passion for the most dangerous sport in the world, and they didn't let that stop them. The mountains were their god, and they refused to live without it. And it takes a lot of bravery to, to, to pursue that portion of your soul and to do it in the most, you know, unspeakably dangerous places and at a huge cost, not only, you know, of ultimately their own lives, but it's so, I mean, Araceli Sagara, a climber that we uh, followed in 2002, said, you know, mountain climbing is a lot of suffering and learning how to be good at suffering. And not that I, you know, necessarily expound that, but I do think that there is something very pure about following your dream and having your, letting your dream define you. Sue lived her life to the fullest. I mean, she found, she did find being back here after a big trip a bit of a sort of, well, she's glad to be back, catch up with her friends, eat a lot of food, you know, and that sort of thing. And um, then soon she'd get itchy feet again because she didn't, didn't have that intensity. And again, I can identify that. I remember when I was work, living, basically, I was living in Kathmandu for a few years. And, and I remember the couple of months I was back here, I couldn't wait to leave. I couldn't tolerate the values that people had. I mean, I was in my, you know, early 20s and um, you know my understanding of the world wasn't as complete as I thought it was it's I think Sue felt the same that there was nothing the nothing matched the, the intensity of being on a difficult mountain it didn't have to be high necessarily but uh, difficult enough to to mean you're up there for you know weeks you suddenly go from a place where you are totally aware of everything all the time to a routine and that's not easy to take so you you get um, the blues in a certain way and then you start thinking even when you're still on on your expedition you know where am i going to go next high altitude climbing is very addictive there is a feeling at very high altitude that you don't get in anything else really i think it's all that heavy breathing <laughs> It makes you very aware of your surrounding and you really live in the here and now, which is something that most people find hard to do in, in normal life. And I'm still being an apprentice at that, actually. But that's a place where you want to go back and back time after time, not just the expedition atmosphere, but also up there in the sky in a certain way. It's, it's a very special place. And of course, the more you do it, the more you are at risk of dying. You know, you look at the roster of people who've climbed these 8,000-meter peaks and you follow them in their career, and almost to an individual, they eventually succumb. And even those that have climbed all 14 of the 8,000-meter peaks keep going back. I mean, even when they've, when they've got that 14th feather in their cap, something drives them. They want to go back and do a new route. It's basically scrambling and rock climbing from the second camp, which is at 7,500 metres, right through to the summit. Um, there's some sections where you're climbing up 
like a rock climb in the Blue Mountains, you know, a grade uh, 16 or 17, and you're wearing big heavy boots and crampons, a down suit, you've got an oxygen cylinder, you've got a mask over your face so you can't see your feet, and uh, you've got mitts on, and here you are doing a grade 17 rock climb with incredible exposure, maybe one or two kilometre drop off to nothing. So if you muck it up, it's going to be messy. I think Sue absolutely loved being at high altitude and I know that she didn't like to go through the bother of finding um, climbing partners, for example, because it's, it's very hard to find a good climbing partner, someone that you trust and that you want to go climbing with again. And she found a way around that by actually climbing with um, a Nepalese Sherpa. So she'd just go over there and, you know, organize her climbing partner and, and go and climb big mountains. And, and I think it worked really well for her. And I remember talking about it with her and she was very happy with... Um, the ease with which she could approach expeditions that way, just, you know, not worrying about climbing partners, just going and, and doing it, basically, and just being with the mountain. She, she was looking forward to doing Manaslu because there was just going to be the two of them, and, and what she envisaged was, you know, a fast, a small, fast party. She wasn't a big group sort of person, no. When there's two of you, in a, when you fall into a, a deep crevasse and swing and disappear out of sight, and you're above 8,000 metres, you don't have much energy to spare, and you've got to set up an anchor, set up a rope, try and get the person out. I mean, it's a, it's a t tough thing to do, you know, on glaciers that don't have altitude issues, but at high altitude it's much harder, and um, with three people it would be a, uh, a much easier thing to manage. It's very dangerous country to travel, just as a group of two, really. Ideally, she would have liked to climb by herself, but that's too dangerous. And so the next best thing was to climb with someone who was just happy to climb the mountain, no other agendas. On a third or fourth attempt, the stakes get very, very high, and also people are proud by nature. They don't want to come back empty-handed. They'd rather not come back. It can get that harsh. And, and one of the alluring things about mountaineering is the outcome of the challenge or the goal is uncertain. That makes the victory very sweet, but the consequences of bad decision-making, limited experience, can also be extremely severe. I mean, I've got, I think, three good friends who've died and another probably ten that I've climbed with who've died. And when you think about it, that's a football team or something, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an extraordinarily dangerous activity. And yet, you manage to tell yourself that you're going to play it safe. I mean, it's, it's so... It's such a waste, though. I mean, you know, I guess I, whenever a friend dies... 
it's a waste. But I mean, it's a waste when anyone dies, but you just see it differently. It was only in um, December this year we went to New Zealand together with my kids and Sue and I. And my husband was overseas at the time, so we thought it'd be a good opportunity to go for a little walk down in New Zealand. And Sue, I don't know why, but she was really keen to tell me and make sure I understood what she would like to happen if she died on a mountain. And plans were afoot for Manuslu at this time. And I basically told her to shut up, you know, and I said, I really don't want to talk about this. And, you know, she, she got very pig-headed and actually very cranky with me and, you know, basically told me exactly what she would like to happen to her body if she died on a mountain. And I said, well, you should, you know, really, that you should be putting things like this in your will, not telling me. And she said, no, no, I really want you to know this. So her wish was that if she, um, if she were to die on a mountain, that she would want not want any fuss, and she would not want to be taken off the mountain. She wouldn't want anybody to risk their lives in taking her off a mountain. Um, and she, she just literally said, I'd, I'd just want them to throw me down a crevasse. So you know, I think back on that a lot. And sorry, <laughs> maybe she, she did have some insight I don't know I remember Subha Jari saying they did a trip in New Zealand and um, that Sue got them dancing to Shannon Knowles singing that song it's the song that I don't know what it's called but it's one that was played 1547 times on our expedition by the 15 year old guy I was with very catchy song and really appropriate to mountains and you know she was, she was just dancing I think it starts on get up get up which is you know if you, if you know anything about climbing so you, it used to be a bugbear you know go climbing and people used to sleep in it's you near know, like nine o'clock we should have gone at like five, five or four she didn't have much patience for, you know, dilly-dallying. And she raged with the girls and the girls just thought she was crazy and then we sang the whole way home and, yeah, I mean, she's just, she's just quite a character. Should we have two or three beers? And say, are you right to drive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, God, there's only about, you know, you're only about five stone ringing wet. <laughs> We'd go to the Forbes Hotel on a Friday night and, and you'd meet Buffhead blokes and, and they'd come up and, you know, they'd, they'd say something half, half drunk or whatever and then, oh, would she look in? <laughs> She'd let her hair down. She'd get a little bit, a bit pissy, whatever. Lots of dancing. I've never, ne never attempted to try and help her in a cab or anything. <laughs> I don't think I dare try that. You know, they say your best climbing is in latter years, like your 40s could be the best. And now I have quite a bit of experience. Not, I haven't got it wired, not at all, but I, I think there's a few more decent 
peaks left in me and a few of those could be eight so maybe one could be Everest again not by the same route so I've left you guessing I thought it was really ironic that Sue Fear co-authored her book with Lincoln Hall and that as she was dying on Manaslu, he was dying and, and thankfully saved on Everest. And I thought that was such a... The mountaineering uh, milieu is such a strange one for me. I mean, I, there's so many stories of, you know, kind of sliding doors. Ever see that movie where... Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like, you know, walk through that door and what's, you know, what's happening in, in our parallel universe, in other mm. words. And here are these co-authors and co-countrymen on different mountains and boom you know they're both at death's door but I just found that really one of those you know uh, hair on the back of my neck kind of moments well I saw Sue in Kathmandu the day before she left for, for, for Manaslu and it was a day before we left for Everest I had a beer and bit of a chat and um, they were definitely heading off the next morning so I was very happy about that she was she was in excellent spirits she had a she was fairly confident that things would go well she knew that there was there is a place where there is avalanche danger between camps two and three and so she was aware of that and I mean as it turned out that wasn't what got her they had very bad snow this this season which really delayed them. Quite a lot of expeditions just gave up because of the conditions. Sue decided to keep going, and I think that that plateau was sort of almost like a basin, like a bowl, and in that sort of land form, that sort of ice form, it's very hard to judge which way the crevasses run, because when they generally run down a, a glacier, they, they go crosswards. But we've got something like that, which is snow coming in from all directions before it flows out of the, the sort of glacier that leads out of that bowl. It's very hard to judge the position of the crevasses. Plus, with all the fresh snow, you wouldn't get the, the slight visual clues that where the crevasses might be. I know that they were there quite late in the season and there was a lot of snow around. And they were coming, this was their second attempt on the mountain, and they were coming down from the summit, so they were tired. And when you're tired, you don't see what you see as clearly when you're not tired, obviously. And I think most of the time when people die in the mountains, it's, it's human error. And, you know, some of us are lucky and get away from that, but some of us are not so lucky and actually die. She had a rope on. Okay, she had a harness on. I mean, it seems like you know she was doing all the right things. Whether her friend had a had the anchors, I, I don't know. You know. So the wind forms this sort of thin crust across the crevasse, and, and it just didn't hold the weight, and it just sort of cracked in. And she fell in, but she was on a rope. What I read is she was actually hanging on into the rope for an, an hour and a half, okay, which is a hell of a long time to be hanging on the bottom of a rope, and and then. After an hour and a half, he said that the crash started to crack towards him and took the, the ice axe and everything, and away she went in there. So, what one side of me, I'd love to know what more about it, and I've had dreams about it, that I've actually gone there and, and gone up there to try and find out what, what's happened. But then, but then, then there's the other side of it, you know, whoa, whoa you know, what's it going to achieve, you know? 
First of all, we heard they both fell in. Then we heard that Bijnu had climbed out. And so we're thinking, what is it? At seven and a half thousand metres, you're struggling to survive yourself, let alone to save someone. Um, yeah, so I suppose my first reaction, did she suffer? And really for my own peace of mind, that's what I've, I've said, that she's unconscious and she's, that's the way she's gone. She's gone into the crevasse unconscious, so there's no suffering. There's not a day that goes past where I don't see something that reminds me of Sue or, or makes me want to believe that it hasn't happened. I mean, we just, we just talk about her all the time and there's lots of pictures around and all that sort of thing. This morning, this afternoon, we arrived home from school and there's the big picture in the hallway. And they went, oh, hi, how are you? You know, as they came up the stairs. So it's, that's just really nice. Constant reminder of um, all the things they did together. And I guess as they get older, all those memories won't be so fresh, but they'll always have them. She had this fantastic saying, which is, what's winning? Now, a lot of people say that, but she used to say it all the time. When something wasn't going right, she'd say, what's winning? And she'd say, then she'd say, well, winning is. And that would be getting back to her basic priority. Then climbing a mountain, as Sue Fear did, and as these other women did, on their own steam, without oxygen, with maybe a Sherpa, but in a lot of cases alone, to have that moment of pure peace at the top of the world. She was so happy and comfortable and at peace with herself at last, you know, and I've been a friend of hers for 20 years. And, and just to see that transformation, it was just great. can relax and enjoy my friends and share that celebration because many people came with me on the journey. These people believed in me right at the beginning. I now feel I can go and uh, share some of my experiences and encourage others. I've, I've learned a lot from other people. Now it's my chance to share some of my experiences, not just by slides, but telling some stories to young people and encouraging them to follow their dreams. Possessed in Spite of Fear was produced by Roz Blewett for Radio Eye on ABC Radio National. For a link to Sue Fear's book about her mountain climbing experiences, go to our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. 
Tell us what you think of what you hear today on ReSound. Questions, comments, rants, raves, smoke signals, Morse code can all be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. What makes that living worthwhile is to get out there in the wild blue yonder in a good airplane with the whole universe waiting for me. Once I had this dream that I was the pilot of a giant commercial airliner, only I didn't know how to fly. So I was sitting there like looking at the co-pilot like, I don't know how to fly this thing. And he was like, well, I don't know how to fly this thing. And then we saw this giant octopus go by. (laughs) And that was it. The desire to fly is so powerful, so enticing, that it even permeates our dreams. And it's funny because most of us have actually flown in a plane surrounded by tons of riveted metal, hundreds of gallons of fuel, and engines the size of cars. It almost feels like you're not flying at all. But it's a different thing entirely to be guiding the plane, sitting at the controls, deciding when to turn the nose of the aircraft toward the cloudless sky. In our next story, 80-year-old Mian Lee decides to fulfill her lifelong dream of taking flight. I have always wanted to fly. I would look up in the sky and see a little plane and say, I wish it was me in there. It was one of those dreams which you think, yes, I'd like to do that, but you know, it doesn't happen. I'm 80 years old. My name is Mian Lee. I was born in France in 1927. I read books about flyers. Uh, There is a famous French uh, flyer, Jean Mermoz, who was my idol when I was growing up. He was sort of a pioneer, and uh, he became my hero. A life took care of, of not flying, because you can't, you're too busy. I would think about it and uh, thought, well, I can't, probably too difficult. I met my husband, an American husband, in 1957, the year we were married in uh, France, and the following year we came here, and I have been in the States ever since. We came to Maine on vacation and loved it so much we decided to move to Maine permanently. Bought a house in Bath, and unfortunately, uh, Not even a year after that, um, he developed cancer. For a year and a half, uh, life just crumbled. He taught me how to take care of the checkbook and pay all the bills. And and every time I would say, oh, I'll do it for a while, then you'll take it back. I would not face the fact that this could end very badly. He died in 79. He was 50. I can only imagine it was very difficult for her. My name is Patrick Lee, and I'm Mian's son. I think once my father passed, you literally have to learn everything. I was no help. I'm 11. All of a sudden, she was the sole person to make decisions. There is a limit to what you can endure and witness. And uh, then you learn to live with that. And you also learn, which helps you a lot, that you are totally capable of doing things that you didn't think you could do and continue living. 
She grew up in France during the war, trying to stay one step ahead of the Germans. Doesn't really allow you to be very weak. Now she was a single parent, so I think that had a lot to do with shaping her resolve. Taking care of the finance, where to work, it gave me a lot more confidence in myself, things that I could do. So I got more confidence, and little by little, seeing those planes in the sky, the dream came back full force. One day, I was looking at another plane, and I said, listen, if you don't do it soon, you'll never do it. I was 75 then. So I went to the little airport at Bonenham, and I asked if they could steer me towards a flying instructor. And they sent me to this wonderful man called Alex Polika. And uh, that's where I met Mion Lee. Let me see in the logbook here. I have it. It was in June 2001. That was our first flying lesson. Your very first lesson, they put you in the pilot seat. He has the commands also, of course, but they put you right there and they say, okay, you fly that plane. First, you have to do the pre-flight check. If everything is okay, then you, you taxi into the runway. You watch your speedometer, and when you reach 65, you lift your yoke, and you are up. And it's a wonderful feeling. I'm up. I can fly. The first time, I had no idea. I said, I may get down and say, that's it. But no, I said uh, immediately, when can we go again? That was the big thing for me when I started. This, is, this thing is joyful. You have no idea how beautiful it is because we fly at about 2,000 feet. So you see everything. You go over the countryside, it's beautiful. The people my age all tell me they don't want to do it. They were surprised. They said, really, you're flying, why? Really, can you do that? Uh, certainly you can do that, anybody can do that. Your self-confidence is going up a degree. You feel good about being able to do it. That's good, you did that good. You're off at the end of the runway now, so we'll bring your power back. I know how to take off and fly, but I still need help landing. And I want to be able to do it without any help. That's my aim now. And after that, I will feel that I know how to fly. When I'm done learning, I once in a while will go flying again. It would be just for my enjoyment after that. Here we are. Can't believe it, we made it. Incredible job, Mio. Wow. It's always been a matter of you're only as old as you think you are. I don't think that she would ever sit down and look at herself as, oh, I'm an 80-year-old. I put her in the category of extraordinary people. Nothing really seems to intimidate her. She'll try anything and usually succeed. I recommend it to anybody who thinks they cannot do it. I recommend it to those who really think they can do it because with that attitude, they will do it. And even if you think you can do it, believe me, it's not that hard and you'll be fine. You will learn how to fly.
Volaire was produced by Arielle Lasky when she was a student at the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies. Flight 35 to Chicago. Request taxi clearance. Now at a Skyliner, flight 35, runway 7, wind south 10 miles per hour, taxi north on strip. Ready, Captain? Okay, co-pilot, let's go. Check for takeoff. Wing flaps. Wing flaps. Rudder. Rudder. Port engine 1. Port engine one. Port engine two. Port engine two. Starboard engine one. Starboard engine one. Starboard engine two. Starboard engine two. Airplane ready. Skyliner, flight 35. Ready. Take off when ready, flight 35. Take her now. I'll say hello to our passengers. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxine. You don't have to wait till you're 80 to fly a plane, but you do have to have the stomach for it. If you don't, Our next story, by Sarah Boothroyd, from Third Coast's 99 Ways to Tell a Radio Story project, offers this simple antidote. Do what you fear, and fear disappears. Fear. 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 You talk, Mom. No, I don't. You're here to be scared. (laughs) I'm not. What are you here for? You're here to be scared. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you're here for pretty scary. Hoping the next one will be scary. Yeah, the first one was scary, man. I was scared. <laughs> We're here to get scared. Yes. We love being scared. Fear is that little dark room where negatives are developed. Michael Pritchard. <laughs> wow, we really loved the last one. That was really scary with that tunnel that was rotating in that. The greatest mistake you can make in life is to be continually fearing you will make one. Albert Howard. We knew something would happen. Around every corner we thought someone would come out and they did. So we were even more scared. For the most part, fear is nothing but an illusion. When you share it with someone else, it tends to disappear. Marilyn Barrick. Holding someone else's fear in your hand and showing it to them. Amy Tan. That really scared me. Everything yeah. else was kind of like. 
And the guy that jumped down and followed us. I've grown certain that the root of all fear is that we've been forced to deny who we are. Francis Morella. The time when you can, you can scream and, and have fun and like not have to really worry about whether you're in danger or not. And I mean, it's an adrenaline rush, and who doesn't like an adrenaline rush? Something that you don't, like, you're not usually scared like that for such a long period of time, and something unusual like that is always fun. Do what you fear when fear disappears. David Schwartz. Do What You Fear and Fear Disappears was produced by Sarah Boothroyd. It was submitted to our 2006 public audio project called 99 Ways to Tell a Radio Story. To hear all the others, go to thirdcoastfestival.org and click on Short Docs. How many of you have ever set a goal that really required a lot of time and you actually did achieve it? Anybody ever have that kind of experience? Yeah. And after the period where you go, oh my God, I got it. It happened. What happens after that? Well, what's next? <laughs> right. Sound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Chicago's Navy Pier, and American Airlines. Special thanks to the many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.